Welcome to the Maitripa College podcast. Maitripa College is a Tibetan Buddhist graduate school in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Interested in Buddhism and want to take your understanding deeper? Each week, we feature different teachings, conversations, and highlights from our community programs and archives. We invite you to join us in listening to and learning from some of the great contemporary Buddhist minds in America today. This week's episode from our Thursday night community programming is the second part of a teaching from visiting Professor Roger Jackson, Why Tsongkhapa Matters. So at this point, his, his, you know, he's become a popular teacher, he's a great debater, he's, he's drawing disciples now. I mean, by 1390, he's, 30, you know, he's 33 years old, so you know, sort of coming into his own. I mean, he came into his own early, but it's, it's really coming into his own. And <clears throat> interestingly, you, you'd think that in a standard career, um, he would he would go on to just you know even greater academic glory and write more books and and debate still more people but he begins uh, he begins number one to become increasingly interested in tantric practice I mean he received these initiations but he'd been focusing so much on kind of the philosophical scholastic classics that he hadn't really had much time for tantric practice and 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 it I've read at least one source that says that Rendawa, who again was his teacher above all for these scholastic texts, was a little put out by this. It's not like they had a split exactly, but Tsongkhapa sort of went his own way for a while. <coughs> and uh, around the same time, uh, he met this mysterious uh, mystical shepherd by the name of Umapa. Uh, Umapa was, which, which means, actually it means Madhyamaka, that's the, that's the Tibetan word for Madhyamaka. Uh, but Umapa was probably a student of the Drukpa Kagyu, uh, a particular branch of the Drukpa Kagyu. He'd studied with a famous master sort of in the generation before Tsongkhapa's named Barawa. Um, so undoubtedly had, had uh, you know, Mahamudra teachings of various sorts, some of which he may have conveyed to Tsongkhapa. But more importantly, um, for, for the purposes of our story, um, Umapa had an extraordinary connection to Manjushri, or Manju Gosha is really the proper translation in, back into Sanskrit of Jampeyang, but let's call him Manjushri, because that's the way everybody knows him. And Umapa was a, was, you know, he, he was having direct visions of Manjushri all the time. And because Tsongkhapa at this point, it wasn't only that with uh, Rendawa, there was this issue about practice of Tantra, but it was also, I think Tsongkhapa felt that he'd gone about as far as he could in terms of understanding Madhyamaka with Rendawa. And he, he, he felt like he needed to break through to another level. And so he began, um, uh, to go with Umapa kind of on pilgrimage and to isolated places. And, and Umapa would conjure up these visions of Manjushri. And just like the case where I described his uh, access to Dzogchen through this other master, Tsongkhapa would ask questions to Umapa who would, po who would pose them to Manjushri, who would answer back to Tsongkhapa through Umapa. And, you know, one of the things that became clear when Tsongkhapa said, you know, sort of, 
I'm paraphrasing considerably here, you know, this is, this is my understanding of Madhyamaka, such and such and such and such. Am I getting it right? And Manjushri's answer comes booming back, no. <laughs> There's, you, you have got a long way to go in understanding emptiness, understanding the nature of things. Um, and so Umapa was a key figure in Tsongkhapa's life in the early 1390s. And again, partly connected with his, his desire to connect more with the visionary and mystical side of himself, partly in an attempt to, to use that to understand Madhyamaka more deeply. I mean, it's not like he stopped reading or anything, but <laughs> he, he, I don't think he ever stopped reading. But, but, but he did spend a good part of the 1390s in retreat. Uh, he went, uh, uh, after his, this time with Umapa, he then picked sort of eight of his best disciples and went to uh, Ulka, which is a, a region in southern Tibet, and spent, off and on anyway, spent a number of years in retreat there, and there are places you can go to, which I have not, fortunate, unfortunately, been to, where you can, you know, you can see where they've, they've, they did so many prostrations that the rock was worn, to, you know, smooth as marble. And, you know, you can see where their heads touch the ground, the indentations, things that you, you've probably heard about. Um, uh, anyway, this, you know, this was kind of the nature of, of this period uh, for Tsongkhapa. And uh, around this time, too, I mean, I think this, this just... Uh, uh, was sort of in the midst of, of this life shift towards more of a retreat mode. He, he thought about, you know, he's right, he's trying to, trying to figure out Madhyamaka. He's trying to figure out what emptiness really is, what the nature of reality really is. And, he's, and you know, the natural thought is go to India, right? Because that's the, that's the motherland. That's where all the great uh, teachers were. Um, and maybe still great teachers are. And he, he really was on the verge of going to India, but Umapa and his Nyingma master, Namka Gyaltsen, basically talked him out of it. I don't know, said eh, things, I don't know if they did a mo or something like that, but that, you know, it doesn't, this doesn't seem too auspicious. And uh, so later writers will always say, oh, you know, we Tibetans are so fortunate that he didn't go to India because who knows if he would have come back and then we would have been deprived of all the great things that he did. So he did not go to India and he did spend a great deal of the, of the 1390s in, in retreat. And there came a point, as, as you might expect, where he no longer needed Lama Umapa for communication with Manjushri. He began to have direct visions himself. And he would sort of have these long conversations with Manjushri, uh, mostly on fine points of Madhyamaka. Um, he was having visions of other figures as well. He had visions of Mahasiddhas like Saraha. Um, and then in, in, in what many people regard as the, the kind of key moment, um, at a point where he was... Um, he was, he was you know, reading Madhyamaka texts and having visions of Manjushri. And, but one night, I think in a dream, actually, he, he had a vision uh, in which Tsongkhapa and his sort of four great commentators from India uh, appeared before him. And then a, a blue-colored disciple of Nagarjuna's, who, who turns out to be Buddha Palita, who wrote the first full kind of authenticated commentary on Nagarjuna's basic stanzas on the Middle Way, Buddha Palita sort of came and blessed him in this dream, and he woke up. And this this is so much like Saint Saint Augustine's conversion story that you you got to think what's going on here. But anyway, he when he got up the next morning, he opened up the Buddha Palita text, 
and came to a particular verse, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think, I've seen, I've read two different versions of what verse in the Garjana it was, or, or what verse in Buddhapalita's commentary on the Garjana it was, but in, in one version it's sort of about the non-existence of any essence, and it's from the 15th chapter of Nagarjuna and Buddhapalita. In another one it's from the Karma chapter, which I think is forgotten the number of that chapter now, but uh, anyway, and he sort of sees this verse, and it's like, boom! It's like the you know the blinders are off. He 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 unders he now completely understands emptiness. Um, so he says he has a direct realization, um, and and from that point on, he everything is clear to him. Uh, so it's 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 an extraordinary event, and uh, you know it didn't come from just sort of. Well, I think I'll comment on this and that. It was you know it came in a, in a dream vision, and uh, he opened a text, and there it was. It just. It, blazed out at him and he he had this understanding and um this this really is the the turning point and it also marks the beginning of the end of this period of retreat uh even before he comes out of retreat he uh writes a, a great poem uh it's usually uh, tibetans refer to it as as tendril tupa which literally you literally translate that and it means praise of dependent arising but that's not actually what the text is, that it's praise of the Buddha for teaching dependent arising. And it's this wonderful, wonderfully evocative and poetic and yet philosophically probing explanation of what for Tsongkhapa became the key to understanding emptiness and Madhyamaka, which is the complete non-contradiction between conventional dependent arising and emptiness as the ultimate nature of things. Seeing these as simply two sides of the same coin, positive and negative ways of saying the same thing. And this would be, again, the hallmark. There's many, many other aspects, obviously, of Tsongkhapa's Madhyamaka, but this, this is what people keep coming back to and what he kept coming back to. And it's really actually based as it happened, so very closely on the 24th chapter of Nagarjuna's original text, which which makes this same equivalency. Uh, so this was this was in some ways the the key Madhyamaka insight that he had. Um, anyway, the the other the other element of this, I've described this as a period in which he was having visions of one kind or another, um, and you know he had this direct realization of emptiness, which is a mystical, we we might say broadly speaking, a mystical experience of some kind, a direct encounter with the nature of reality. Um, he he began during this period uh, where all these visions had occurred uh, to to transmit sort of special teaching, special esoteric doctrines to certain of his disciples, especially these eight disciples that had gone with him for these long retreats, mostly in, in southern Tibet. Um, and these would become the basis, I'll say a little bit more about these in a few minutes, but these would become the basis for the, the so-called ear-whispered or hearing transmissions that have been handed down, just, just as they are in other Tibetan schools, through special guru-disciple direct instructions. Uh, Nyenyu is the, is the Tibetan for this. And um, uh, Tsongkhapa you know, supposedly received from Manjushri this magical volume uh, which contained secret teachings on guru yoga, mahamudra, chu, um, a variety of, of topics that aren't necessarily central to the Gelugpa scholastic continue, uh, curriculum always, but, but in fact became an important part of the tradition. So 
So all, all this was happening as well. In his later life, last basically 20 years of his life, um, he became much more involved in public life than he had been before. Of course, he was a well-known figure in central Tibet before his years of retreat, but he became even more famous after his years of retreat. And he, um, he, he undertook a, a range of different public activities, which are often um, kind of boiled down in Gelukpa biographies to four great deeds that he performed. One of these was actually in the midst of his retreat period, which again was not solid retreat. He would come out and teach a little bit now and, and again. And he restored, um, there, was a, there was a temple in the area where he was doing retreat that had a, a great and venerable uh, Maitreya statue that had kind of fallen into disrepair. And he helped to raise funds from his sponsors in the Pakmo Dru tradition, uh, in the Pakmo Dru uh, nobility to, to kind of restore this. So the restoration of this Maitreya statue was the first of his great deeds. And then shortly after he came out of this retreat period, maybe 1400, maybe 1402, I've seen two different accounts of this. He, he convened, he along with Rendawa and a number of his other uh, friends basically convened a great conference on Vinaya, on monastic uh, practices, monastic discipline, in, in a very conscious attempt to kind of put this back as the foundation of monastic life. You would think, oh, the Vinaya is the foundation of monastic life. But again, it was maybe observed in the breach more than in actuality. So, so this strong emphasis on ethical discipline is the basis for all sets of vows, not just amongst Pradimoksha vows, but Bodhisattva vows and even Tantric vows, trying to make sense of, of, of ethics in a, in a very broad sense. Um, and the third great uh, deed that, that's described is his establishment um, I'm mean, not that there was nothing that went on at Losar in Lhasa before this, but he established what's called the Munlam Chenmo, the Great Prayer, which of course, as some of you have participated either here or in Asia, in elements of the Munlam Chenmo or the Great Prayer, but it, it begins on Tibetan New Year. Typically, that's in February, sometimes March, and it stretches from the new moon, Losar, new, the new moon of the new year, until the full moon, two weeks later, uh, which then is, was designated, is designated as the Day of Miracles, celebrating particular miracles the Buddha had performed. And, and the whole kind of two-week uh, two period, in which, which eventually became when the Geshe exams were given and a whole you know, great deal of activity, religious, intellectual, and otherwise. And he founded that basically in 1409. And in that same year, he actually sort of began the process of founding his own first monastery. Up till then, he'd been, you know, a peripatetic lama going from this monastery to that. But finally, with his own doctrine beginning to come together, he founded, uh, with the help of his disciples, on a hill not too far from Lhasa, Ganden Monastery. And that became the first, uh, the first great Gelug monastery. It was consecrated in 1410. And he had installed various uh, three-dimensional mandalas. That's considered part of this great deed as well, though they weren't consecrated till 1416 or 17, fairly late in his life. So these were the sort of four, the great public deeds that he performed around this time, because his fame had become widespread. Now he was invited by the the Ming emperor of China to visit. And he first time he was invited, maybe 1408, he just refused and. 
when you get a second invitation from the emperor of China, you don't, well, you, he refused, but he sent one of his great disciples, Shakya Yeshe, there. And uh, Shakya Yeshe became a great favorite at the Ming court, uh, accumulated quite a lot of donations, shall we say, and came back and used that as the basis for the founding of Sarah Monastery, which was actually the third of the, of the great uh, monasteries of the Gelug founded in central Tibet during Tsongkhapa's lifetime. Um, but Tsongkhapa never went to China. And, and in fact, as, as time went on and his health began uh, to be a, a, little, uh, a little less than ideal, he, he spent more and more time just at Ganden. And, and in his last years, he was largely confined to Ganden, not, not traveling around the way that he had. But he used these last years, I mean, really, I'm, uh, I'm not only talking about his last decade, but this whole last 20 years, when he was incredibly active, he 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 wrote voluminously, and uh, uh, and you know again I'm I'm not going to you've heard of many of these and I'm not going to go into the details of them but just to give you an example on the sort of sutrayana level and the vajrayana level, he wrote these three great texts on the stages of the path again, excuse me, inspired by Atisha's brief text on the stages of the path, the, the lamp for the path to enlightenment was, is the name of, of uh, Atisha's text. And, and uh, you know, uh, some of you, I think, were present at some of uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche's teachings in North Carolina over several summers where he went, went through this in, in great detail. Anyway, there's the, there's the great text on the stages of the path. All these have been translated into English, incidentally, um, which is, I mean, the, the, great, the great treatise on the stages of the path, the Lam Rim Chenmo, uh, you know, is in, the translation's in three volumes. It's, it's very large, and it's got, you know, the, the, the whole last volume is simply on shamatha, and then particularly on Vipassana, which really is about Madhyamaka. Um, and he wrote, uh, he wrote a short, a very short, Lam Rim text. It's actually poetic and it's the closest to an autobiography we have from Tsongkhapa. Um, it's sometimes even just called his experiential song, but it's technically speaking, it's the short or the condensed Lam Rim. And, uh, you know, it's sort of each, the refrain of each verse, he describes the sort of process of his training, you know, this is the way I practice and if you do this, you'll be okay paraphrase considerably there, but uh, and, you know, and late, very late in his life, he wrote a middle-length Lam Rim, which, which actually, among other things, and Jeffrey Hopkins has translated portions of this as, uh, I think it's called uh, Tsongkhapa's Final Exposition of Wisdom, and it was sort of his last major statement about Madhyamaka, his, his summation of, of the views that he had on that. So these are all great, very great texts. Uh, he wrote, uh, you know, again, this is all through the the, the, these last 20 years of his life, he wrote uh, The Essence of True Eloquence, which is about the three turnings of the wheel and, you know, Madhyamaka versus Yogacara views of which scriptures take priority, how we ought to interpret scripture. It's, it's what we call hermeneutics in the religious studies biz. Um, but the very, very important text. Bob Thurman has translated the whole thing. Jeffrey Hopkins has translated significant portions of it. Uh, some people think it's his, his most brilliant single work. Um, he wrote a, an, an immense commentary on Nagarjuna's fundamental verses on the Middle Way, which um, it's it's one volume, but it's like this big that was translated by Jay Garfield and Geshe Ngawang Samten. Uh, it's, uh, 
uh, some years back. Uh, Ocean of Reasoning, is it? I can't remember the exact uh, title of the English translation. And then this, um, this uh, uh, work that, again, very late in his life, his commentary on Chandrakirti's Madhyamakavatara, or Entry to the Middle Way, which actually, for Tibetan scholastic purposes, is the go-to Madhyamaka text. You would think it would be Nagarjuna's root verses, but actually uh, the text that is one of the five great texts studied in the scholastic curriculum is actually Chandrakirti's, which is regarded as a somewhat easier way to get a handle on what's going on in Nagarjuna, because Nagarjuna is not easy. Chandrakirti ain't easy either, but it's, it's all comparative. Maitripa College is a Buddhist institution of higher education founded by Yangtze Rinpoche in 2005. We offer two graduate degree programs, a Master of Arts in Buddhist Studies and a Master of Divinity, as well as Classical Tibetan Language Studies. Founded upon three pillars of scholarship, meditation, and service, the Maitripa College curriculum combines Western academic, contemplative learning, and traditional Tibetan Buddhist disciplines. Through the development of wisdom and compassion, our graduates are empowered with a sense of responsibility to work joyfully for the well-being of others. They become agents of positive change in the world and are shaping the development of Buddhism in the West as scholar practitioners, chaplains, professional translators, doctoral degree candidates, leaders in the nonprofit world, educators, and more. We invite you to join us and make your practice your life. Um, he wrote a companion volume to the Lam Rim Chenmo, the Nak Rim Chenmo, which is again a, a, a grand synthesis of everything in all four Tantra levels, you know, based on meticulous comparative scholarship. Um, and not all of that has been translated. Almost all of it has been translated. The, the stuff on the completion stage of highest yoga tantra is still to, still to come. Um, and that's been translated by various people, though mostly by Jeffrey Hopkins. Um, he wrote a number of Guya Samaja commentaries, um, um, including the lamp illuminating the five stages. There are five stages to the Guya Samaja completion stage. There's two translations of that in English. Again, it's big. Uh, one by Gavin Kilty, the other by Bob Thurman. Um, uh, Chakra Samvara commentaries as well. There's a very good translation. We've got volume one of the translation by David Gray of his uh, great Chakra Samvara commentary. He wrote two works on the six yogas of Naropa, which is one of the first things he learned when he got to central Tibet. Um, and it's very, some very interesting material in there, particularly if, if like me, you're interested in Gelukpa Mahamudra, because he, he doesn't, he dances around, uh, he doesn't ever use the term precisely, but the way he describes things there are indicative of what he might have been teaching secretly, if in fact he was teaching Mahamudra secretly, and that's a, that was the topic of a lecture a couple of years ago, maybe, but <laughs> anyway, you know, in, in his, Again, his final years, he was largely confined to uh, to Ganden, uh, passed away uh, at the age of 62. Um, and because he, it's it's generally recognized in Gelug tradition, as in most Tibetan traditions, that um, maybe not universally, but but anyway, at least one version of what happened is Songkhapa, although he had a direct realization of emptiness in the late 1390s, he couldn't attain full enlightenment 
in this human body because as a monk he had not taken what's called a karma mudra, a, a female consort. I mean, it, it could be flipped, but in this case he's a male. Um, and so he attained enlightenment, you know, immediately after the moment of death um, and, you know, went somewhere. <laughs> uh, there's stories of his being reborn as a bodhisattva in some pure land. Um, other, you know, th there's a variety of different versions out there. What What is clear is that there is not in the proper sense, a, there is no incarnation lineage, no reincarnation lineage, no tulku lineage connected with Tsongkhapa. Um, even though many of his disciples, of course, were parts of very important incarnation lineages. This is a little bit like uh, Milarepa. There's not really a Milarepa incarnation lineage. Oh, you'll, you'll hear people say, oh, such and such is an emanation. Uh, that's not quite the same. That's, that's, a, that's a slightly different notion. Anyway, I'm, I'm looking at the clock here and thinking, oh my God. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass very quickly over the, the last, those of you who've been to my lectures before know, I never really get to the last part or I pass over it with, with obscene speed. Um, but just, just you know, very broadly, and some of the, many of these are, are points that I've, I've made already. Uh, you know, Tsongkhapa contributed to Tibetan Buddhism in a whole variety of ways. He built these various institutions. He founded the, Lam, the Mun Lam Chenmo, uh, the, the three great monasteries around Lhasa, Ganden, Drepung, and, and Sera were all founded during his lifetime, mostly by disciples of his, but he was the direct inspiration. Um, the kind of education that he himself had, uh, though it was based on earlier models, became the kind of model for the monastic educational system in Gaelic monasteries, studying the five classic texts and debating and so forth. Um, he, as I mentioned, though, he himself is not the, the beginning of any incarnation lineage. The Gaelic, like all Tibetan traditions, uh, certainly the Kagyu, Nyingma, and, and Gaelic are all very much uh, invested in this. There are many incarnation lineages in the Gaelic, the most famous of which are, of course, the Dalai and Panchen Lamas. And in, in the usual accounting, uh, the first uh, Dalai Lama was his disciple Gendundrup, uh, who actually was the founder of Tashi Lunpo, the great monastery in Tsang, the great Gaelic monastery there. And the first Panchen, although people often talk about uh, Losang Chuki Gensen, um, who was a tutor of the fifth Dalai Lama as being the first Panchen. He was the first recognized Panchen, but Kedruk J, one of the great disciples of Tsongkhapa, is, is actually counted as first in the lineage. So his disciples went on to, um, you know, to, to, to be the beginnings of these different incarnation lineages, of which there are dozens and dozens. Uh, again, he, he gave these, these secret teachings as well, we're, we're told though there's not much historical record about this until later. The, the tradition insists that he passed on this magical book and all these teachings about Guru Yoga and Mahamudra and Chu and so forth to, to at least one or two disciples who handed them down. And eventually, you know, in, in the 16th and especially 17th century, they became more public. Um, he himself, even though he didn't have an incarnation lineage, became a kind of a deity. I mean, I use that in the, the loose sense, but like Milarepa, like Padmasambhava, like many of these great figures, he himself became deified. 
and and you know a great as as any of you involved in Gaelic practices know um there's a f more than a small amount of attention paid to Tsongkhapa. I mean, the, you know, this image besides me, the, the field of assembly, the Dzogcheng, basically has a particular version of Tsongkhapa at the center. Now, Tsongkhapa stands for your own guru, but it's still Tsongkhapa, and it would be a whole other lecture to, to, to talk about the details of this, but basically it, it, it conveys the fact that he has mastery over all the different practices of the sutras and the tantras and that he's a recipient of both the the wisdom traditions of that start with Nagarjuna and, and came down through Tibet, uh, the 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 traditions of widespread practice of bodhicitta and those sort of things that start with Maitreya and came to Tibet and these esoteric traditions that are in in the center. Um, so he's you know he's at, he's really literally and figuratively at the center of, of the Gaelic world, and you know a, a prayer like the Mixema, which we recited, and a um, you know practice like uh, Guru Puja or Lama Chupa, which many of you have, have participated in, or the shorter practice of the hundred deities of Tushita, which is very directly a, a Tsongkhapa Guru Yoga practice. All this is just so woven into Gaelic life, the same way that particularly in the Nyingma, Guru Rinpoche or Padmasambhava is, is just front and center all the time. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he's a scholar and philosopher in ways that I've, I've already tried to indicate, you know, comparatively studying all sources, reviving epistemology, you know, rethinking what the Madhyamaka middle means. Uh, he had, and I, I wish I had time to get into this, but this is another lecture too. Uh, you know, he had various critics and admirers. I mean, you know, he's a philosopher, and philosophers will find people to disagree with them. Uh, but I, I would stand by the point I made earlier that almost everybody deeply respected him as a great figure, even if they found his version of Madhyamaka objectionable. And, and some did. Uh, there are a number of Sakyapa scholars who objected. Um, another number of Nyingmapa scholars who did as well, Kagyupas. I mean, everybody, you know, uh, that's, again, we could we could talk about that in some other way, some other time. Uh, it's all fascinating stuff, and there's been some very good uh, scholarship produced on all of this. Um, I, I will just uh, make one, uh, tell one very little story, though. Uh, my wife and I study... We're primarily Gelukpa in our orientation, but we have a Nyingmapa Lama in Minneapolis that we study with a, a fair amount. And we did a retreat, of, uh, sort of it was over Memorial Day weekend. So it was a four or five day retreat last May, um, which was on, I, I was astonished when this was announced, uh, on Tsongkhapa's three principal aspects of the path. And I said, oh, this is going to be interesting. How, 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 is, how is a Nyingmapa Dzogchen master going to interpret Tsongkhapa's especially the, the verses on Madhyamaka. And this, this Lama who spends, he spends his summers in Tibet. He's got a monastery there and so forth. He was a student of the, the great modern master Kenpo Jikme Punsok, whose name might not be that familiar to you, but he is uh, the founder of this great monastic uh, encampment called Larungar in Zichuan, which the Chinese have been trying to dismantle over recent years. There's been quite a bit of publicity about it. Anyway, he was, in, in a truly non-sectarian spirit, he was very interested in Gelug and especially in Tsongkhapa. And he had a, he had a vision 
one day of Tsongkhapa who appeared before him and taught him the three principal aspects of the path. So our Nyingma teacher said, well, you just, you got this, you got this transmission, only two people separated from, b between you and, and Tsongkhapa. So it's like, wow, I don't think my Gaylord lines are quite that close. <laughs> and, and when he got to the, to the wisdom part, it was like, ooh, we're not in Kansas anymore. It was, <laughs> it was a very, very different take uh, all having to do with the, you know, alaya vijnana and the pure nature of mind. And, you know, you can probably read that into Tsongkhapa, but it was not, it's not obvious. That's not the way I've heard it for most of my Gelugpa teachers. Anyway, that's just a, it's anecdotal. Again, I've made the point that he's a, a great uh, visionary and mystic as well. Rethought Tantra in various ways. He's really the one who gave us the definition of Tantra as deity yoga, centrally. Uh, poet. A great, there's a wonderful uh, uh, collection of, uh, it's called Splendor of an Autumn Moon, of a translation of some of Tsongkhapa's more lyrical poetry, praises of this or that deity, um, and so forth. So let me, let me having, as usual, gone way over my time, um, I, I really appreciate your indulgence. Um, just uh, sort of a few quick points about why I, th apart from all these great things, which for people in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, especially in Gelug tradition, are of course going to be appreciated. So much of what I've said resonates with many of you, I know. But, you know, for somebody who's a little bit further outside the tradition or who just <coughs> says, oh, well, yeah, that was fine. He was great in his time, but what's, what's that got to say to me? I, I think there are qualities that Tsongkhapa had that we can all appreciate in certain respects. <coughs> One of these, and, and I think this is admirable, and, uh, um, you know, some, something to be uh, emulated is, is, to, is to study with masters in all traditions. Don't, <coughs> even though, of course, you may have a central identity, and it's probably good to have a central identity, it doesn't mean you should cut yourself off from seeing what people in other traditions have to say. Tibetans themselves typically recognize that there are realized masters in other lineages, and uh, the way they approach things, I think, can only deepen our, un our own understanding. <coughs> His qualities as a scholar, which as at least a, a pseudo-scholar, I really appreciate, um, you know, the, the careful way in which he read original sources, compared them, thought critically about them, and then tried to make some sense of it all. <coughs> You know, his ability to, to try to synthesize disparate perspectives, not to just give up with the idea that, well, this contradicts that, and so we can't make any sense of it, but to try to forge something creative and synthetic out of a variety of, of different opinions. It's a courageous thing, doing constructive philosophy. It's not very much in fashion these days, but Tsongkhapa was a constructive philosopher, I, I think in many of the best senses of that term. Um, th this emphasis that he gave to ethics, again, I I've talked about that, so I I'm not going to repeat that, but at, at absolutely at the foundation of the path, and if you read any of the Lam Rim literature, you understand that, uh, how basic that is. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> you know, on a, a slightly more religious note, he, you know, the way in which he balanced mysticism and rationality. We often think, oh, well, if you're a mystic, then you can't be interested in philosophy. Or if you're a philosopher, then, oh, mysticism is just mumbo-jumbo. Well, 
Tsongkhapa seems to be uh, disproving that. I mean, here's one of the profoundest philosophical minds Tibet ever produced or the Buddhist world ever produced, and yet was having visions of deities, direct experiences of the nature of reality. For him, it wasn't in contradiction any more than it was for you know great Christian mystic theologians like Meister Eckhart or even Thomas Aquinas. Although in Thomas Aquinas is a case, this case uh, you know, and again he's comparable to Tsongkhapa in his way of systematically doing theology. But there's a story to the effect that that Aquinas had you know he dug into Aristotle. He'd written the Summa Theologiae and all these amazing works. And then right at the end of his life, he actually had this uh, mystical experience and. He said that everything I've written is just straw. Uh, so Aquinas may not be the, the ideal comparative model here because uh, I think in Tsongkhapa and actually in Tibetan tradition in, in general, this, there's this kind of wedding of the intellectual and the scholarly and the mystical. And it's, you find this in differing degrees with differing emphases in different traditions, but all of them have it. You know, the, you, sometimes you think, oh, well, the Nyingma and the Kagyu, they're all about meditation, and the Gelukpas and sort of the Sakyapas, they're all about scholarship. But it's, that's, it's such a caricature. They've, they've all got great scholars. They've all got great mystics. Um, and, you know, the <clears throat> interesting, too, to me is, again, along religious lines, the way in which he, faith, I, you know, faith's not, probably devotion is the better word here, but I'm, I use, deliberately use the word faith because we, talk in the West often of this sort of faith-reason dichotomy. Um, and, you know, for Tsongkhapa, as for almost all Tibetan Buddhists I've ever known, especially those who are scholastically trained, they, you know, they can, you know, they can dig into a text by Chandrakirti or this or that, and they can, you know, explain the fine grains. You know, Geshe Zopa was like this, Yangtze Rinpoche is like this, Lama Zopa is like this. You, you can, they can, they can go at it you know, toe-to-toe -to -toe for hours on these points. I used to get exhausted talking to Geshe Zopa, you know. It's like, it was so precious. And, yet, you know, it's, he's, he's just ready for more, you know. Let's talk about what this means. But at the same time, there's this profound faith, this profound devotion. And it's not, it's not a dichotomy. And I think uh, Tsongkhapa exemplifies that in, 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 a, in a wonderful way. Um, this, in, in the particularly Madhyamaka sense of harmonizing, dependent arising, that is the conventional world and conventional knowledge with the ultimate realization and appreciation of emptiness. I, I do think that uh, although Nagarjuna anticipated him in this, that this was, that his emphasis on this is an extraordinary gift. Um, and I think, uh, I, I do know that in my own life as sort of a Gelukpa, struggling to understand <clears throat> some of the finer points of the philosophy. This is my touchstone. I always come back to this. If I don't understand what Dose of Emptiness is saying about, um, you know, the three natures and how they really ought to be interpreted, I've always got this, you know. <laughs> and I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to, to come back to. And, you know, the last point, maybe the most important, and... Uh, <clears throat> And, but I think this is, this is true not just of Tsongkhapa, but of so many teachers in the Tibetan tradition, is that uh, even though he was a great philosopher and a mystic, um, he was quite down to earth. And, he, and the whole point of the Lam Rim, which really is the, the kind of structure that Gelugpas and many in other traditions as well will use for their Dharma lives, is to take all this complicated material, all these arcane practices, 
and make them applicable to everyday life. And so, you know, it, 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 it may seem like it's just, Tibetan Buddhism can seem absolutely overwhelming. Uh, one of the early scholars of sort of uh, Buddhism in the West, uh, Jacob Needleman, once said, Zen is essential Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism is complete Buddhism. And it, it, it can feel that way. But, but the whole thing is that that completeness is always channeled towards a way in which you can actually put it into practice. Uh, however distant it may seem. So, so something like the appreciation of the equivalence of emptiness and dependent arising is something you can apply all the time. Needless to say, various mind training and bodhicitta sorts of practices are things you can apply all the time. Tibetans were wonderful at this. Um, and, and, and teachers in all traditions are wonderful at this. They, uh, the very few of them that are just content with endlessly intellectualizing it. They, they want it to be put into practice. Thank you for listening to the Maitripa College podcast. If you would like to learn more about Maitripa College, please visit our website at maitripa.org. M-A-I-T-R-I-P-A dot O-R-G. This podcast was produced by Alfredo Pineiro, Kate McDonald, Andrew Hughes, and me, your host, Tiffany Blumenthal.